Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the From the Finney podcast with Jimmy and me, Jake. We'll be joined by the advisor to the owner of Preston North End, Peter Ridsdale. For this episode, we're going to review the transfer window. We've got plenty of questions and different talking points for what should be an enjoyable episode of the From the Finney podcast. Enjoy. Hello, Peter. Thanks again for uh, joining us on the podcast. It's much appreciated. Appreciate your time. It's always my pleasure. Um, yeah, last time we spoke, it was around four months ago and the club had just moved into the training facility at Exton. How do you reflect on your time at the new training ground so far? Uh, do you feel it's benefited the club in any way? I think it's been great because obviously on a daily basis, you know, I see the players, I see Alex, the football management, um, and it's brought us together. It's almost like there's a single entity as opposed to, you know, if I wanted to go and see them before, I had to get the car, go down there, not know if they're still training, not training. And almost there had to be a reason to go and have a discussion, whereas yeah. now it's a lot more informal. Um, so I think it's been an outstanding move for all sorts of reasons for us. Yeah, yeah. I know you. Uh, when I was showing around, your office was quite central in the building. Uh, and obviously, I think you're a couple of doors away from the manager in his office. Uh, you've touched on it there, but how, how is it? And how do you think the players and everyone else have reacted to that sort of group, if you will, sort of coming together? Well, I think um, the players also appreciate it. They obviously see us every day um, during this interesting period where we've had contract negotiations, etc. Um, again, the players can just pop in and have a conversation. Um, and look, I think that it's crucial in any football club that everybody understands that everybody employed by the club contributes in some shape or form. Um, before, there was the football entity at Springfields and we were at Deepdale. And it was almost like there was no bringing together. So I think it's, I think it's, it's great in that sense. But also look at the facilities, and you know we only have to look at some of the comments that were thrown back at us last week by one of the departing players, um, inferring that the facilities at Springfields have been less than what you expect in a, a Championship or Premiership club. Uh, nobody can say that about the new training facilities. Yeah, uh, we'll come on to those comments in a little bit. Um, but in terms of starting and, and a starting point I don't think there's any better place to start really than obviously the transfer window which has just closed um, it's been an active one for us compared to the last two how do you reflect on it in general and how different has it been compared to the the last two and and sort of I guess any that you've been involved with because obviously Covid's played a massive part I would imagine well I think the the transfer window that's normally busy is the summer but last summer's transfer window, A, a felt very short because, you know, we'd finished last season late and then we'd suddenly started the new season. Um, and it was a, a strange experience, really, in, just in general. Nobody knew how long we were going to be in lockdown. Nobody knew how much cash there was around. We didn't know how long we had to survive without any further uh, mainstream income coming in. Um, and um, uh, as you know, we did very little business. But what we were aware of and we'd been aware for some time got a number of players who were out of contract I think the manager felt that there was also a need to freshen up the squad and therefore going into January we knew there were a number of issues that 
would be resolved one way or another. Um, you know, uh, we knew that those players who were out of contract who didn't sign would then be free after uh, Monday night, 1st of Feb. Um, that of itself was an issue. Um, we also knew that um, some of them were interested in discussing new contracts and some weren't. They just felt it was time for them to move on. And then the question is, could we get any value out of those players? Um, and as I say, the manager felt that there was an opportunity to freshen up and a need to freshen up, which meant we needed to move some players out on loan to get game time, to free up space to bring players in. Because let's not forget, this was the first season that we'd ever had a squad cap of 25 players. Yeah. So it wasn't as if we could just keep as many players around as we wanted and then use them as we saw fit. Any who weren't in the 25 clearly didn't have the opportunity to play. Yeah, of course. So just in terms of, obviously, the two lads who did sign on, in terms of Alan Brown and Daniel Johnson, obviously, great news, obviously, to tie them both down to long-term deals. Was there any point within the discussions where you thought that it might not happen, or were you quite confident both those signing on? Um, well, look, until it happens, you're never sure. But what I think was clear is that... Um, both Alan and Daniel had made it clear that if we got to the right numbers, they wanted to stay. You know, they love the club. They wanted to be part of the future. Um, clearly, there was a, a debate and a negotiation on how much. Um, but it was a very different negotiation to the two Bens, who had said very openly and honestly, we think it's time for a new challenge. We'd like to go elsewhere if we can. Um, and hadn't really got their minds around numbers, whatever they may be. And um, in the end, they said, look, the number's irrelevant. We just think it's time for us to find a new, uh, new challenge elsewhere. So our problem then was, were they going to walk out for nothing? And yeah. trying to find in a very difficult market a home for the two of them. Um, you know, this, this market, I don't know if you've examined who's done what business, but I think it's pretty clear that there are very few permanent deals in the championship, We're, certainly for money. Um, and the majority of transactions that have taken place throughout the leagues have been on loan. And we had two players there that uh, clearly we were trying to extract some value from. So it was it's the hardest window I've had because the volumes were very high. You know, two new contracts. I think it was eight out, eight in. Um, uh, and of itself, there were challenges in the out because, as I say, we had two players there who, had they stayed till the summer, would have had no value whatsoever. You mentioned before just how close Ben Davis was to joining Celtic before obviously the Liverpool interest happened. Would that have been a pre-contract or was there, as you mentioned just a minute ago, an opportunity for us to sort of extract some money for him in this window? The difficulty in answering that question is that Celtic never gave me any intimation of what they were going to do. I mean, right. the first I hold from, heard from Celtic was... I can't remember it was Monday or Tuesday of last week. Um, I got a very brief phone call from Nicky Hammond, who's the sporting director there, um, or director of football, and then a one-line email which just said, we're aware that Ben Davis is out of contract in the summer and we intend entering into a pre-contract for the summer of 21. Um, that was it. And after that conversation, I heard nothing from him. It's a bit all different. I knew, well, it's, it's amazing because, you know, all I then knew is what I saw on... Uh, you know, on Sky Sports or in the media, which was suggesting that he'd already agreed a pre-contract. Um, some people were saying they were going to come in and try and nick him on the last day for a, a small amount of money. But I had no idea. I had no yeah. conversation with Celtic. Um, and Ben and his agent had intimated to me that they were going to enter into a pre-contract and would be signing for Celtic. 
Um, uh, so I didn't know whether, and in fact, Ben, as recently as the Sheffield Wednesday game, had been suggesting to the manager that he expected to be with us till the summer. Yeah, yeah we said, didn't we, on the podcast, was it Sunday night? That, Sun- Sunday morning. You know, or Sunday morning, like, Ben Davis was playing man of the match against Sheffield Wednesday. And, you know, you you had no idea after watching that game that he was going to be leaving. It was that, to us, we just, we just didn't see it happening. We thought, well, he's going to stay till the summer, he's, he's playing well. You know, fair play if he goes. You know, he's done what sixteen years here if, since since he joined what eight nine years old. So you can't really we, we couldn't really knock it for, for him if he was to go. Obviously, it's a shame that we weren't getting a fee. But I think as long as we got a fee for at least one of them, I, I, obviously we're not polished to the figures in terms of obviously how much we've got for Ben Pearson. But we've actually got money for one that we could have lost the ball for free. You know, potentially because that would have been the worst case scenario. Yeah, and look, on, on Saturday, Ben Davis genuinely thought he was going to be with us to the end of the season. He had no idea that uh, he was going to go to Liverpool and he certainly expected to be going to Celtic in the summer, not now. Yeah, yeah. obviously you've mentioned it there. It's an unbelievable move for Ben. And you've mentioned that there's been sort of a unanimous feeling of goodwill towards him from within the club and especially the players and from within the dressing room. Um we had Mark Lawrenson on the podcast a few days ago and he spoke about the possibility. I mean, I don't know where things lie in, in regards to sort of the league and, and the legalities of this, but you mentioned the possibility of North End maybe becoming a, a feeder club of sorts for Liverpool. Um, and I think he mentioned that off the back of when Mark had family on the board at North End, it was something that we'd asked Liverpool about and apparently they were sort of keen on the idea but the league put a stop to it how do you think the two deals with Ben and obviously Sep coming to North End could impact our relationship sort of with Liverpool moving forward and do you think that maybe not specifically an out and out feeder club but along that sort of line do you think there's something that could be built on there I think people fantasise about it but in reality um, players go to the clubs they want to go to and clubs will put the players that they want out on loan or getting experience where they think the best place is for them at the time. That's partly based on where you are in the league, um, what sort of team you've got and where the player fits in. So, for example, um, it was only 12 months ago that we looked at Rian Brewster. Um, And it's fair to say that had we been prepared to pay what was a very high price, we potentially could have got him rather than go to Swansea. Um, uh, but he went to Swansea. I, I think that f- feeder club, club concepts miss the uh, fact that the player themselves have got a say in where they go. Yeah. Um, and the dynamics of the clubs at the time change. All I would like to say, and look on the same um, the, the deadline day, we got um, Anthony Gordon from Everton. What we try very hard to do is have good relationships with all clubs within the Premier League and the Football League. Um, because there will always become a time when you want to try and do a deal to get a player out. There will also be a time when they come in from one of your players and you want the right relationships. So am I delighted that um, the relationship with Liverpool is such that we did the deals we did on transfer deadline day 100%? Do I think we've got a very good rapport with Liverpool? Yes, I do. But I think we have with most clubs, and that's something that I've tried to nurture throughout my career. Um and it's things we'll continue to do. But I think the concept of one feed a club with another club is inappropriate and wrong. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's quite maybe an old school thing as well? 
no disrespect well, to Mark if he's listening to this. Look, there was there was a time when there was a rumor in you know Peter Robinson's time at Liverpool thirty years ago or something where Crew were essentially a feeder club for Liverpool. Whether that was anything other than an informal arrangement, who knows? Um, you know, some people and often clubs with foreign owners have suggested that clubs in the football league should essentially become B teams or feeder clubs for um, for teams in the Premier League. What I think that overlooks is we are desperately keen to become a Premier League club. We're not here to be raided every time we get some decent players by clubs in the top flight. Um, there are times when it's right and proper to do so. I mean, the, the, the main players we've lost for fees over the last few years um, until Ben Pearson went was, you know, Jordan Huger went into the Premier League and Rick Cunningham went to the Premier League and Callum Robinson went to the Premier League. Now Ben Davis has done that. It's very difficult to stand in the way of a player who gets that opportunity. But I'd like to think there'll come a moment in time when we're in the Premier League and we're going back to the Football League to source players. So the, the suggestion that you limit your ambition by becoming a feeder club for a Premier League club, I think is inappropriate and certainly for a club the size of Preston North End. Yeah, you mentioned obviously Ben Peterson within that, Peter. I suppose, what were your initial thoughts when you heard his comments when he first joined Bournemouth, especially his bits around obviously the training ground and then joining a better team with better players and a different philosophy of football because I think it sort of got a few of our fans backs up to be honest you know after five years of, of service and we never really it didn't feel like we were thanked you know in terms of obviously developing him as a footballer during that time look it's difficult when somebody goes to a new employer the initial enthusiasm is to try and say the right things that you think the new employer wants you to say before you necessarily think about the impact on where you've come from mm. and um i think I haven't spoken to Ben about it, but I'd like to think if he reflects on what he said, uh, it may well have been more enthusiasm to satisfy his new employers rather than a genuine desire to knock where he'd been. In fact, he came to see me and thanked me for everything, shook my hand when he went and um, said he'd enjoyed every minute, but confirmed what he told me for the last six months, which is he thought it was time for a new challenge. Um, uh, I think if he believed that our supporters would see him as having been disrespectfully but disappointed because um, I don't think as a lad he meant that but um, clearly whatever he meant I don't think they helped anybody particularly um, because um, you know we believe we've got a very good team we've got some very good players um, and that's been proven with the next transfer which was Ben Davis to Liverpool so we clearly have got some very good players at other clubs feel will fit into to their structure so look it's one of those things that we could spend all evening getting uptight about it and our supporters <laughs> I understand get, get uptight about it and, and I get that but from my personal point of view it, it was a transaction that was right at the time for the player to go where he went um, there was nobody else in for him and he said he didn't want to stay or play so um, the best thing that could have happened was we found a club that he was happy to go to and there was a financial transaction that potentially gives us a significant amount of money rather than go for nothing. Was there any other interest in players this month from an outgoing perspective, apart from the guys that have gone out on loan? No. In terms of Alan, obviously we touched on both him and DJ signing the new deals. Um, I don't know if you'll maybe have the answer to this. Ask the question anyway, but how does Alan feel about playing Right back. I mean, we're personally, me and Jimmy and Ollie, my other co-host on the podcast, are fans of him in that position and do think he could kick on there. But 
Obviously, it's an interesting one to know maybe how Alan sees his future. Is it a position that he sees himself playing in? Does he envisage himself moving in back, uh, moving back centrally? Or like, we we felt that he maybe wouldn't have agreed to sign his new deal on the proviso that he would have been playing right back long term. But obviously, we don't know that. Look, when we were discussing uh, the contract with Alan, at no stage did he talk to me about what position he was going to play. And um, I'm old enough to remember a player called Paul Maidley who played for Leeds United. He played for England and he played, um, I believe I'm right in saying, all 10 outfield positions for Leeds uh, during his career. Um, And uh, Alan Brown is an outstanding player in a number of different positions. Um, he's stood in at right back and I know the manager feels he could well uh, hold down that position in the Premier League with no issues whatsoever. He thinks he's that good. But Has he Alex also... been listening to the podcast by any chance? <laughs> who, who knows? Uh, but, um, uh, but also, um, you know, we know he's got great legs and box-to-box energy in terms of midfield. I think the thing in modern-day football, if you've got a player that can cover in a number of positions and excel in a number of positions, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. And if you look at our midfield at the moment, um, having brought in uh, Jason Malumby and obviously Ben Whiteman, we've got Ryan Ledson, we've got DJ now having signed, we've got Brad Potts, we've still got Galley, we've got Tom Bayliss. Um, uh, the fact that Alan can play right back at the moment, I think is a benefit to the team because we've got loads of midfield options. Um, and if I've just missed somebody out in midfield and I've upset them, I apologise. But all I'm trying to illustrate is We've got a tremendous strength in midfield. Yeah. Um, and um, Alan excels at right back as well as in a number of other positions. But to the best of my knowledge, um, he's happy to play there if asked. And certainly, as I say, in the contract negotiations, that was never once mentioned. Well, just in terms of other outgoings, uh, Peter, obviously Josh Harrop and Josh Earl both gone out on loan to, to League One to get some game time. I suppose the question that I had was, obviously, these Boys both signed new contracts in the summer, um, but obviously they've had very little game time since signing. Can you understand like fans a little bit confused and frustration about them signing long-term deals, but then not really getting a look in and now obviously going to the league below to get game time? Um, yeah, of course, I can understand supporters thinking that. But at the time that we signed them for different reasons, um, we believe that they could contribute to us over the next two or three years. Um, but at the moment, you can only start so many players in the squad. And one of the frustrations the players themselves have got is um, if they play regular football and get a run of games, they think they'll be able to show us what they can do. And sometimes, you know, we just talked at length about Ben Davis. He went to York and he went to Southport and he went to Fleetwood, he went to Newport County. Um, so when he got into the team on a regular basis, he got a significant number of first-team games under his belt um, for other clubs in different divisions. Um, uh, Josh Earl is a younger one who's currently being kept out by Andrew Hughes and we've now brought Craig Cunningham to cover, so Josh will get game time. Josh Harrop uh, feels that he needs a run of games to be able to prove what he can do, and his best way of doing that is going to be to go out alone to a team that hopefully will compete at the top of League One. Um, I just think it's a natural thing that happens in football. Um, in the meantime, what you do is you protect your value in the players by securing them on a slightly longer term deal if they're prepared to do that yeah no, that's fine um, <clears throat> the obviously deadline day was a busy one Anthony Gordon is one of the ones that came in you've spoken about how close it was in terms of 
getting it done and getting it done in time. Was there ever a point that you thought it might not have happened? Yeah, look, the, the Anthony Gordon one, uh, Alex and I went to watch him play in a, a first-team pre-season friendly 18 months ago, and we've been tracking him ever since. And in this window, it was clear that there was at least six teams in the championship wanted him. Um, the issue we had wasn't so much um, did we want him, could we have got him earlier? It was the fact that Everton wouldn't let him out. Yeah. And they would only let him out if certain things happened within their club. I think there was an issue about one player potentially going out that didn't go out. And then they wanted to get uh, Josh King in. Um, and even on transfer deadline day, despite the fact that um, I'd been told at two o'clock um, that day by Everton that it looked like a loan deal would happen. And they confirmed that we were his preferred choice, which we were delighted about. Um, the Josh King deal didn't get done till a couple of minutes till 11. And therefore, there was four minutes to go when we finally got the paperwork through from Everton to submit to the Football League. But Anthony had been with us for five hours at that stage. And he sitting there with us, you know, hoping we'd signed all the paperwork. But it was absolutely clear that if Josh King didn't go to Everton, we wouldn't get the paperwork signed by, uh, by them to uh, for Anthony to come to us. So uh, it was not so much the transaction of the lad coming or did he want to come, did he, didn't he want to come or anything else, or the terms of Everton, it was purely they would only let him out if they got a player in. But we'd done the deal with them ages before that in January, in terms of the financial terms, and he'd spoken to us and the manager and said, I only want to go to Preston North End. How much do you think location played in that? Um, less than people will make of it. I think there's some other top clubs. Tell you what is very impressive and people underestimate. When we talk to players, and this happened as well with um, Ben Whiteman, um, Alex sat and talked to the players and he told them about all the games they played. He'd seen them play when they scored that goal or how they made that assist or that tackle. And I see players in complete surprise and awe of the fact that Alex has done his homework and he genuinely knew where the players played to their best, etc. Um, I'm not saying others don't do it, but I would suggest that rarely do other managers impress to the same extent about the amount of work that's gone into the background of the players we're trying to sign. That's interesting because obviously in, in all the sort of press, not press, but the media that, that they do with the club when they sign, um, you know, there's always the comment of the manager, the manager this, the manager that. And I think that's interesting to know for fans, the fact that he goes to so much detail and, and he goes in into so much depth in terms of research on the players. And it's not just a flippant conversation, if that makes sense. The amount of work that goes into um, each transfer window is incredible. And we spend hours and hours and hours watching players, either in person, in person and clips of the players. We uh, have a, uh, I've, I've got already for the summer options for every position uh, in the team. Um, and we revise that every week. And we get clips of those players. We'll go and watch the players. Now, some will then get discarded. Some will come back into the, the options or whatever based on circumstances. Um, and when we decide that's the player we want or that's those three would like one of those three, uh, Alex spends hours and hours and hours watching them so that when they do talk to him, he can genuinely say, look, I saw you score that goal against this person or I saw that pass you made there and that's how what we're looking for in our midfield, etc." And as I say, people are genuinely surprised because I don't think other clubs go into the same detail. 
Has the club made a, I suppose, a, a real effort in terms of the analytical side of the game then? Because obviously you mentioned clips there and obviously we've experienced likes of Scout, for example, for our podcast. Has the club made a real concerted effort in terms of going down that video analysis route, especially now when I suppose it's probably harder to get into games due to COVID? Um, yes, but not just because of COVID. So we've been doing it for some time now. Um, and um, we, ha- we have found it more difficult to go to games. But funnily enough, if Alex and I have asked to go to games, we've normally been allowed in. Um, yeah. They are saying that scouts can only come if you're going to watch one of your next three opponents. But if we're, we've been to look at the player, clubs have been very accommodating. Um, but the team behind us um, that are doing the analysis have been outstanding. Um, and um, uh, someone called Craig Lawler, I don't know if you've met Craig, has been heading that up. And um, he's got a whole team of people. I talked to them all on Zoom before the window opened and told them what we're looking for and what our aspirations were. And they were great, enthusiastic, energetic, knew what we're looking for, uh, did the work. Obviously, it's a bit frustrating for them because for every 10 they bring up, you know, we discard nine. Um, but that is the job. Um, but we have got a great group behind us that nobody sees. And therefore, um, uh, there's no individual comes up with all these players. There's a team of people who contribute to everything we do. And I think if this transfer window is successful, which we hope it will have been, that's down to a dozen people, not one or two. Yeah. yeah. Do you, was there any that, any players that we had an interest in or we were trying to get a deal done for that never came off for whatever reason? And perhaps that we'll try again for in the summer or? Um, I was just about to jump in and say no, and then I'm thinking, because there might have been, but um, not that I can remember. I mean, you know, I've already said a year before we tried to get Rianne Brewster for whatever reasons, we thought the deal was too expensive. I think the one difference this January, if I may say so, is that because of the way in which we're funded and owned and run, um, we were the one of the very few clubs who had the cash to do the business we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, uh, very few clubs in the championship, I think, if you look, have expended cash on permanent transfers. Um, and therefore, uh, we were in a stronger financial position than we've ever been in uh, to be able to go and get the targets that we've been in for. Um, so if there are any we've missed, uh, I apologise for sort of forgetting. But in the main, the ones we brought in were the ones that we selected out of those who are available. In fact... We were offered so many people in this window that for every position we brought somebody in, there were probably five options that we could have taken had we wanted to. Do you think that's going to lead to quite a big sort of free agency in the summer? Because obviously, if you look through the league, there's a lot of players going out of contract in this summer. Do you think that's going to be probably the the route that a lot of teams do take in the summer transfer window? Um, I think there'll be more people available for free. Mm. Um, I think there will be a load of people who have got to readjust their wage expectations. And I think there'll be a lot of clubs who have not yet felt the brunt of the financial crisis. I think they'll find it worse in the summer that is now. I do know for a fact that there's double figures of clubs who have um, outstanding HMRC payments, which they're trying to negotiate time to pay agreements. Um, And, um, By the time we get to the summer, we will be strong, healthy and able to go for the targets that we're looking for. Now, 
you know, clearly not everyone will be affordable, but um, I think we'll be as strong and competitive as anybody in the championship in the summer. Because obviously um, the work we've done so far acknowledges that we've got a number of positions we want to fill permanently in the summer. Uh, nobody's kidding ourselves on that. But I think that puts us in a great position because we've stopped a number of loan players. Um, that does mean that when we get to the summer, we'll have a whole host of free spaces within the 25 um, to try and target our first choices on a permanent basis. And I, th- I think we're in great shape. Just on yeah. the summer window, do you anticipate that it will be sort of as busy as this one, if not busier? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think this was a trial run. <laughs> at, least, at least you know what you're ex- you can expect in the summer then. <laughs> you say, because the, the churn we've had, I mean, we've spoken on the podcast a couple of times about the overhaul is coming because we we, we could see it, it coming. I think the manager said a couple of times that the squad needed a bit of a freshen up. The manager said something really interesting um, to George at Lanks Live. He said that, you know, hopefully this year, but certainly next year is going to be a big year for us. Is that related to like the transfer side of things and the the squad that's going to be hopefully at our disposal come next season? And I suppose for yourself, like what are yours and Trevor's expectations for us over these next eighteen months? Because obviously, it does look like we're going to quite a, a key time for us as a football club. Um, my guess is, if I'd spoken to you last summer or the summer before, the summer before, you'd have said the same thing. Because I think that when you want to progress, which we do, every transfer window becomes a key time for us to try and do the right business. Um, I think what's happened since lockdown last March is we've we've been in a a strange situation where predictability of results, predictability of performances has gone out the window. The number of away wins that team have been um, uh, gaining, uh, including ourselves, versus normal times uh, has been strange. There's very few um, results you can predict in the same way you used to be able to. Now, I'm assuming when crowds come back, we'll get back to some sort of normality of what we expect home and away wins, etc. But what we have to be is geared up for those times and make sure we've got the best chance of progressing to the playoffs and hopefully at some stage promotion, whether it be top two or whatever in the future. And I know people say that's fanciful, but our sole objective is to get Preston North End in the Premier League. Now, that isn't easy because we've got any number of clubs with the parachute payments. Uh, They start off with the financial advantage. Um, But because of the way we have been run and because of the way we're funded, we still have as good a chance as anybody else at competing at the top end of the championship. So, you know, we need to get our act together in the summer, which we will. If you look at our business this January, to some extent it's been planned, but also opportunistic because, for example, um, I happened to be walking down the corridor at the new training ground. Again, one of those advantages of being together um, and saw Deck go over and hurt his knee. And I stood and watched and saw that they were calling for a stretcher, etc. By the time I got back to my office, I was on the phone to Leicester City for Daniel Leverson. We'd only been talking to Leicester about him the week before and decided that that was one for the summer, not now. Um, uh, the fact that Deck got injured and literally was being put on the stretcher and I phoned um, by the following morning would sign him. So that was opportunistic. It wasn't planned in, in this window. Um, you know, bringing in two centre-backs on Monday wasn't planned last Friday um, uh, because obviously we didn't know Ben was going. We were talking to, to Liverpool about potentially bringing Seppin on loan. 
um, but certainly didn't expect to bring two in. We'd concluded one was enough for now. And then suddenly we needed two. So, you know, that was um, something that wasn't planned, but we had all the names there and the data. So the fact we'd done the work meant we could move quickly. But as of last Friday, if you'd have said we we're going to sign those, the, the two centre-back, um, Liam and um, Sepp on Monday, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, whereas others were targeted, you know, Ben Whiteman been looking at for at least 18 months. We tried last summer and then uh, it became a bit more difficult than we expected. Um, but because we knew that we were certainly going to lose um, Ben Pearson um, and maybe one other at the time, because no, neither Alan nor um, uh, DJ had, had committed at that stage, I don't think, um, we decided we'd go in and buy him this January if we could. And that's what we did. So, look, there's a lot more planning and logic to what we do than people think. Um, it has been easier, if anything, this January because of the financial circumstances of the market. Um, but it's also been the hardest because we've done eight outs and eight ins. Yeah, of yeah. course. Just in terms of like League One and League Two, do you think recruitment in those two leagues for a club like ourselves, say, obviously we've picked up the best central midfielder in, the, in League One in Ben Whiteman, do you think if we were to cherry pick the, the best players out of those leagues, it's going to be easier now due to the financial situation of COVID because those clubs are financially struggling? You know, they don't get the TV money, for example, that a club in the Championship does. And obviously they're, they're now obviously restricted by their salary cap as well. Well, I think the salary caps in Leagues 1 and 2 are a disaster for Leagues 1 and 2. I think to start saying, you know, you've got a two and a half million wage cap in League One and one and a half in League Two. Um, I'm astonished they voted for it because I think it's very short-sighted and it does mean that their players will be earning relatively small amounts of money to, compared to what we can offer in the Championship. Um, it's, got a, it's a double-edged sword. It means it's a market in which we can try and cherry-pick. Uh, the, the negative side is we don't get a lot for players we put out on loan because the wage recovery is obviously restricted by the wage cap. So it is a double-edged sword, but the positive side of it is, yeah, if there are very good players there and we are monitoring all the time, it means that going forward, they're going to be on relatively small salaries. Yeah. Um, just on, on the financial side of things, it's been, well, it's widely known again amongst North End fans. Um, David Healy is our record transfer in terms of incomings into the club. Can you confirm whether or not we've broken our transfer record in this window or any other recent windows? Or does David Healy still hold that crown, so to speak? If indeed it is David Healy, we might all have the wrong information. Well, um, the difficulty I've got is, as you will know, I wasn't around when David Healy was uh, was bought. Um, my gut feeling is we probably broke it this January, uh, marginally, but I think we probably did. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's that one that can be put to bed then. Yeah, good. I suppose final one for me on, I suppose, transfers. Just in terms of obviously this new work permit situation, since obviously the Brexit agreement has gone through, how is that going to affect us if we continue to look overseas for players? Because my understanding is that Emil Reese might not have been able to get a work permit under the new legislation. And obviously, we've seen clubs like Barnsley and Swansea go to the MLS, for example, for low knees this, this window. Is that a market that we potentially got that we can potentially tap into, you know, in future windows? Should the right player come up? Um, look, as you're probably aware, it's overseas markets are not ones that we have traditionally exploited. Um, we think it harder to judge 
how easy it is for somebody to assimilate the championship and its competitiveness. Um, so we do use it sparingly. Um, we've used it with Emil. Um, and we, in fact, uh, last Friday I was talking to the MLS about a player, but circumstances dictated I couldn't get him in in time, including the work permit and getting him physically into the country because of um, uh, COVID and travelling and everything else. So, yes, of course, we'll look at the MLS. Um, we will still stick primarily to domestic transfers if we can. Um, because, as I say, we have a benchmark of quality. We know what League One is. We know what the Championship is. We know what the Premier League is. I think one of the things that maybe has gone slightly under the radar is that, obviously, if you look at the incomings this January, um, Daniel, Jason um, and Sepp have obviously come from the Premier League. So yeah. where historically people have criticised us for only looking down the leagues, um, we have taken the opportunity of... Um, trying to get people from the Premier League uh, in this window. Um, the only negativity of that is if they do well for us, they go back to their home clubs or they get sold elsewhere. Um, and, um, you know, we would like to feel that if they come to us and do well, they may well stay with us. Just on that, um, obviously we've quite, well, in the last few days, it's been quite widely reported that there's seven loanees at the club. Um, I think it was with Radio Langshire you spoke about trying to turn some of them into permanent deals before the weekend. I would, I guess, say that the three that might get turned into permanent are Liam Lindsay, Greg Cunningham or Chet Evans. Is there anything that you can sort of say on that? Or Well, um, I can pretty much guarantee that by tomorrow they'll be down to six, not seven. I've done a deal today with um, one of the clubs and the individual's so, but the paperwork hasn't gone through yet, but it should go through tomorrow. Um, and I'd be hopeful that by Saturday we're down to five loanies and two have turned into permanents. It's slightly complex. And I don't want to say which of the individuals, but it's slightly complex. Um, uh, all I would say is you should assume that those who are out of contract with their host club this summer are the easiest ones to do. Is, is yeah. that a change in rules, Peter, by the way? Because... I've never known this situation before in terms of you can bring a loan in and then convert them to a permanent. Is this down to the You've always been able to do that as long as they're with you. As long right, as okay. they're with you, you can do it. Is it because of the 25-man squad? Is it changed at all with, with that? I don't think so. I think, I think the thing that would make it difficult is if you suddenly had to try and pay a transfer fee because obviously once the window closes, you can't pay a transfer fee. Right. So... Um, uh, it needs to be somebody that you can turn from a loan into a permanent without paying a transfer fee. Okay. And I suppose. And again, we didn't deliberately go to seven loans, although we clearly knew we were having to, um, because um, we were hopeful for Anthony Gordon, but didn't know till four minutes to 11 we'd got him. And obviously, the two centre back loans were, as much as anything, driven by Ben going. Yeah. So um, we didn't know last Friday we were likely to have seven loans by Monday night. Um, we thought we might have five. Um, but we also knew on Monday, because we checked, so that we could turn two into permits if we wanted to. So yeah. it's been planned. Right. In cool. terms of contracts and stuff, um, you mentioned in your interview with Radio Lancashire about fans being somewhat critical of the club for letting players run down the contracts, uh, obviously specifically the two Bens who have left the club. Do you think with hindsight that the players could maybe have been offered contracts sooner and therefore 
should they leave, we, re- we, we receive a greater fee. Um, but also just to avoid sort of being in a situation of uncertainty with, with fans and willy won't he kind of thing. Um, well, look, people sitting on the outside say, why don't they get them signed up sooner? And what they seem to forget is it requires both parties to sign a contract. Um, when we went into the lockdown last March, nobody knew how long that was going to last. And therefore, we didn't know what the financial situation was going to be. So to start um, throwing around the sort of numbers that we thought we needed to throw around to keep those uh, players um, would have been imprudent last March. Um, however, it became clear by the summer, despite the fact we kept on offering and offering and offering that, um, money wasn't the main driving force in at least two of the situations. Um, they decided from their own career point of view that they wanted to move on elsewhere. So despite the fact that the increases that were offered were, um, in my opinion, eye-watering in a climate where we've got COVID and we've got little or no income, and I'll stress on that, I was criticised today by a supporter, understandably, for saying we'd had no income since last March because we have got a small amount of income from the season tickets we sold in September in anticipation of October restart. And some of our supporters have very generously said that they'll take high follow instead of a, a refund. Um, so clearly we have had a small amount of money, but nowhere near what you would normally get in a normal trading period. So we've had to um, ensure the club is in the right financial state. Um, you know, everybody thinks we've got a billionaire owner. He's got businesses who have been massively impacted by COVID, you know, 350 pubs, a hotel group, etc. Um, so we've had to try and do the right thing. But do I believe that had we offered what we offered in January last summer or earlier, we'd have secured the other two signatures? No, I don't. Fair enough. Um, just sort of further to that then, um, there's 13 contracts out of player in 2022, sort of like the likes of Scott Sinclair, Tom Barkhazen. Ethan Walker, Brad Potts, and obviously the manager as well. You counted them. It's definitely 13, is it? <laughs> I'm just, uh, Jimmy's written this question. I'm just taking his word on that. Well, I've got 11, but I'll believe you. It was two, <laughs> it might be the two of the youths, potentially. I've got a list somewhere. Um, no, anybody yeah. who's a professional is on my list here, and I've got 11. Ooh. But I'm not going to argue over two, so go on. <laughs> Where's my list? Doesn't matter, go on. No, no, so I deflected that back onto you then, Jim. Thanks, mate. <laughs> All right, don't worry. Look, um, it's 11 or 13. What you're going to point out is this summer's going to be equally difficult as last, and I understand that. Um, uh, look, the reality, in my view, is that uh, given the marketplace outside, given how little money everybody else has got, and given that historically our wages haven't been the highest, uh, you will see that most of the people in our division's salaries are heading towards ours as fast as you'll ever see because of the current financial climate. So do I believe that this summer we will be at risk of losing players who we would wish to keep because they're out of contract in a year's time? No, I don't. Um, What's what's the situation around the manager and his contract then? Because obviously he's out of contract in 2022 as well. No, he's not. Is he not? No. Oh. So obviously he signed a three-year... Three and a half year deal was it when there was the talk of West Brom because that that's what was reported. Is it an extra year on top of that potentially, <laughs> or is this is this uh, another little deal that's not? No, no, no. Look, 
the situation with the manager is that he signed a three-year deal at the time that we signed his last contract. However, when it gets to the end of the second year, it automatically goes onto a rolling 12-month contract. So he's never out of contract. Cool. Right. Interesting. Very that's nice. good. That's good. I suppose that that's good assurance for the fans, though, because yeah. we, I, I suppose there's a few of us we, who've panicked because... Look, We've it's assurance it, for the fans we? and the club, isn't it? Because mm. the reality is that if he wants to go anywhere else, we've always covered by compensation of 12 months. And if we want to change manager, we recognise there's a cost to get rid. Yeah. Um, but it would be imprudent of us to have a situation where he just walked away for nothing or we had to whatever. Um, so, look, um, he is not out of contract in 2022, which is the question you asked. Um, he will always have a 12 month rolling contract while ever is with us. That's great. No, yeah, that's really good, good to hear. Just maybe maybe not to some fans, but definitely to us. Well, no, to us. I, I, we think he's amazing, don't we? We think he's the best that's in the championship at this level, you know, that, that can come to Preston. So we've no issue with that at all. Um, just in terms of the championship, Peter, what was your take on this? Eighteen million pound proposed wage cap because obviously I know you mentioned about the wage cap in League One and Two was is a disaster for those guys. What was your thoughts on the proposed eighteen million pound wage cap? Because obviously it looks to be dead in the water anyway. And how do you think that affected a club like us? Well, what is I don't know why you think it's dead in the water, um, but um, uh, the situation with wage caps is that philosophically I'm against them. I think that um, debt shouldn't be allowed to be put into football clubs. I think investment should be equity. So if you've got an owner who can afford to um, fund a Magcrawler club, there's no reason why they should be limited to that investment, as long as it's not debt. Um, and we've always argued on all the wage control discussions that there's wage control already in our division and certainly now our football club, because if we can't afford it, we just say no. And it yeah. appears to me that some clubs who can't say no want to introduce to protect themselves and some clubs just want those who can afford it to be reined in um, so that um, it levels the playing field the calm yeah well in their eyes it levels the playing field um, so philosophically we're against um, it is still on the table and being discussed um, the only thing in the championship because there's such a disparate group of clubs and ambitions um, getting two-thirds of the clubs to agree on anything, including whether today, Wednesday or not, is almost impossible. If you're putting this out tomorrow or later in the week, don't have anybody think, I don't know whether today's Wednesday or not. <laughs> yeah, I think no, it, yeah. I, just, I just obviously read that, obviously, you've got to have the two-thirds agreement. I think it was 12 clubs potentially against it. So it's like, well, you're not, you're not going to get 12, that's half. So, so this... what, what, what tends to happen with... Um, the Football League, and I'm not trying to be critical, it's just a statement of fact, is um, if they try and get a yes to something and they don't get a yes, all that happens is they put it back to us a month later and try again, and then a month later and try again, and eventually they wear us down. But as we speak at the moment, it's not dead in the water. Um, there are many problems on getting wage controls or um, whatever it may be that um, the Championship would vote through on a two-thirds majority. As I say, philosophically, we're against them anyway. Pragmatically, we may have to accept them. And were it to be at the 18 million that was suggested, um, well, so be it. You know, it's, it sort of doesn't affect us really. Cool. Just fa final one on football governance. Obviously, there's a the talk of the changes to the Gambling Act 
potentially coming in, in to play at the end of the season. Obviously, we've been sponsored by a gambling company since 2017 when the Virgin Trains deal expired. How do you feel that that could affect us as a club and also football in general in the UK? Well, I think that, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a very, very high percentage of clubs in the top two divisions who are sponsored by um, gambling companies. And uh, look, when I arrived at Preston North End, we were sponsored by an alcohol company. And then that was banned. Um, uh, the issue that supporters sometimes um, overlook, and I understand they've got strong feelings about certain industries, etc., is that at the moment, that's our biggest single corporate income line. And gambling companies, because they've been cash rich, have paid a lot of money for front of shirt sponsorship. And if they're banned, we will have to find an alternative. Um, but if we do, we will have to, just as you know, tobacco advertising went, alcohol advertising's gone, and if gambling goes, um, we'll have to find something else. The issue is that there are very few industries at the moment outside of gambling that have got enough money to uh, sponsor a substantial number of football clubs, and therefore we would have to go into um, a market at a time when everybody was looking for a new sponsor and try and get a commercial deal that works for us and doesn't leave a big hole in our cash flow. Um, but what will be, will be. We've all already started looking, because our current uh, agreement expires this summer. We've already started looking, and the um, instructions to those of us who are trying to find the right partner is, if we can, we will find a non-gambling partner, irrespective of legislation, to put us one step ahead of everybody else. So if we can, we will. No, good. Yeah, it makes sense as well, really. Um, in terms of sort of like the future and, and moving forward, obviously it's looking increasing. Well, it, it's not looking increasingly likely. It probably will take a miracle for us to see fans back in stadiums this season. Um, are the club working on any sort of campaigns or any initiatives to in, entice fans, old fans and potentially new ones as well, uh, back to Deepdale for next season? Just given that with everything that's gone on, there's probably quite a lot of people that might have fallen out of the habit of physically attending Deepdale and, and going to the football every Saturday. Yeah, we, we had um, a couple of hours on it this morning. Um, I think it's all sorts of issues. First of all, I don't think there'll be supporters back this season. Um, I think that there are some supporters who got used to doing other things on a Saturday or a Tuesday night. I think there are some supporters who perhaps are of an age where they will be nervous about going back into um, a non-socially distanced environment in the short term. So we recognise that we're going to have to be flexible and innovative. And I'd like to think that by the time that we know we can sell season tickets, um, uh, we will address the current climate and try and persuade people that they do want to come back to Deep Dell and watch his life. No, good. I think that's it's really key, I think, because how ease, the, the ease of I follow. I know, obviously, I follow will be switched off, potentially, you know, once fans are back in the stadium. But I think everyone's sort of got used to using the I follow system now. And I think it's it's really, yeah, it's, they're just used to it. You can put it on a, on TV at three o'clock on a Saturday and you've still got your family around you, if you so to speak. You know, for me, I've got a two-year-old. I, I can sit there with a two-year-old on a Saturday. And it's like... It's, it's a different sort of, it's a, we've just sort of got used to a different sort of environment to watch football. And I can't wait to get back to Deepdale, you know, for a bit of peace and quiet more than anything. But it's like, it's, it's, there'll be fans that have sort of fallen out of the habit of it. And it's just good that 
we're getting on the front foot more than anything as a football well, club. So we totally understand that. And I think, um, to be honest, in five or ten years' time, you know, all these people who've dashed for seats in stadiums and made them sort of 40, 50, 60,000 um, capacity will wake up and realise that the means of getting the game into supporters' eyes in terms of the, the ability to view, um, the stadium will only be one of a number of different streaming options. Um, whatever that's the predominant one for us, we will try and fill the stadium as best we can with innovative ideas, but we'll also try very hard to be on the front foot with other means of getting um, the matches into people's houses or phones or computers or whatever. Because as I say, I think that however much into the future, people will raise their eyebrows when he said, you know, we used to turn up the stadium, actually watch it live. You know, I do think that we're in a transitional period, but we will do our best we can. And I know there's many of our supporters can't wait to come back. We've missed them. Um, they are a very important part of our future. And I do think you've seen the games um, how dramatic an impact not having support in the stadium has had on results. Yeah, absolutely. Just in terms of social media, I mean, in a couple of interviews you've done this week, you've mentioned about, obviously, you've been quite open that you've seen a bit of criticism about club policy on social media, Twitter, etc. Has any of the criticism been used at the club and turned into a positive and, I suppose, being able to be used to result in changes at the club at all? So it's that you might have seen something that, someone's criticised you but think actually he's actually got a little bit of a point there and, and try to use that to the club's own benefit at all well look um, my view on social media is in the main um, I mean look, I did a couple of interviews um, this week um, Radio Langston and uh, the LEP um, and one on our own website and there was relatively little comment now, I took that to mean it was probably all right because social media in the main just tell you how stupid you are and you don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we have to recognise that it's a great tool to criticise and people tend not to use it to praise. Um, uh, I've already mentioned, I think, that this morning I saw on Twitter very early before I left for the office that somebody had criticised me for saying we'd had no, no income. Um, and I realised I'd made a mistake because clearly we have had a small amount of income from our supporters. Um, that supporter helped enormously by emailing to the club and telling me exactly the same thing early morning as well. And so I responded straight away and apologised. Um, so if people criticise, we do a number of things. We don't just run a mile. We listen to it, take it on board. Uh, we either correct what we've done wrong if we believe we've done something wrong, or we try and explain it if we haven't, or in our view, we haven't. Um, so it's a very important part of the communication process with me and the club and the rest of my colleagues um, uh, I don't think it's a balanced communication forum, forum um, because I think it's I say more pointing out the things they think we should do better um, but we need to learn from that and we try hard to do so so we don't ignore it um, and it is important and to the degree we can put things right as a result well then those criticisms have helped haven't they yeah, yeah absolutely in terms of our academy, Ben Davis is obviously prior to his move anyway. He was, but even more so now, he's a, he's a, a shining beacon for the club and, and the academy um, because he's he's the only one that's, if you will, like a proper homegrown product who's come through from the first team. He, he joined at whatever age it was. Jimmy reckons it was eight or nine. I think it's reported online that he joined at eleven. Either way, he joined as a, as a kid. 
and he's gone through the whole process and, and obviously been sold on. Josh Brownhill and Bailey Wright are two academy graduates have also been sold on, but they came to the club at 16. How do you reflect on the performance of the academy and, and what are your expectations for it? Um, I think the academy is a real challenge because the people who run it do an outstanding job. But um, I think what's happened over the last few years is with the advent of under-23 football, which I think is like ballet dancing, um, we don't have an under-23 football team. But also during that period, Leagues 1 and 2 clubs have been uh, reticent about taking our young kids and putting them into their team to give them experience. They're looking for um, more seasoned professionals because the manager's longevity is relatively short-lived. So, if you know, I've already said that Ben Davis went from us to York City, then he went to Newport County, Southport, Fleetwood, I think briefly to Trumby. Um, and they were very welcoming. And I think in the year that Ben, his first loan, York got to the playoffs of League Two under uh, Nigel Worthington. So I think um, getting our lads out for the right experience is challenging. Um, you've ignored there in your comments Ethan Walker, who's currently with Carlisle and hopefully will be getting adult first-team football. I think our academy lads will be best served getting that sort of football experience before they come back, and that's what we'll carry on trying to do, but fewer clubs are accepting them. I think having an under-23s, in my opinion, is a waste of money. I think if by 19 or 20 they haven't demonstrated they can... Uh, be ready for first-team football, they're probably never going to. There'll be some exceptions. Look, I grew up with, you know, an Alan Smith or a Harry Kewell or Jonathan Woodgate, Paul Robinson, the first team in the Premier League at 17 or 18. So um, you normally know, and certainly when I saw Ben Davis play for our academy, you knew. I mean, he stood out. Um, we're also surrounded by, um, you know, many Premier League clubs or clubs with, um, under 23 football like Blackburn Rovers um, and then Liverpool and Man City and Man United and Everton etc so it's a very difficult geographic area to hold on to your best talent we've been I was going to use the word robbed it's probably unfair because they've paid minimal compensation but we have been um, raided by certain Premier League clubs for some of our best talent in the sort of under 14s under 15s and there's little the system can do to stop it, which is disappointing. Um, but look, we will continue to have an academy to try and generate the best kids we can internally. And as I say, the academy guys do an outstanding job. Um, but uh, anybody who thinks it's going to be the um, conveyor belt to our future first team players and there's going to be three or four come off every year are kidding themselves. And that's not because we don't do a good job. It's just the industry and the dynamics and the geography that we find ourselves with. Yeah, I think I'd seen Birmingham City have just scrapped theirs and gone to a, an under-18s and under-23 model only because of their geographic. And I think Salford City have done something similar just to get out of the EPPP programme because obviously at the minute there's no financial point of them having a full academy because they either get picked off by a bigger club or they just don't get the talent coming through the system. I Look, think we've, got a, to... we've got a young man at the moment who is um, uh, 15 going on 16 that we think has got an outstanding chance of playing, not only for us, but at top of the football. And we are going through hoops with 
um, an advisor, I was going to say an agent, but I'm not sure they're allowed agents at that age, but let's say an advisor and his family and Premier League clubs fighting us to get him out of our academy. Now, the good news is he wants to stay with us, we believe, and we're close to sorting a deal out for his scholarship. Um, but hanging on to that talent is harder today than it's ever been. And, you know, Brexit and the implications around uh, work permits, etc., will only make that harder because um, Premier League clubs have, over the last 10 or 15 years, um, had a high proportion of overseas players in their squads. If they yeah. turn their attention to domestic players, um, well, then it will be harder for us to hang on to some of our better talent at a younger age. So, look, it is what it is. We don't moan about it. I know a lot of our supporters feel we don't do a good enough job in terms of numbers going through. Um, I think they need to understand the dynamics, um, but we're doing our best to try and do that. Um, and, you know, for every Ethan Walker who gets the chance, others are finding it harder and therefore we lose some. Yeah. No, in I terms think, of... Yeah. Go on. Sorry, Jim. Yeah, I think because obviously the, the, those three lads were mentioned in terms of Josh Brown, Old Bailey Wright and Ben Davis. They're the only ones that we've really sold, if that makes sense. Obviously, we've got, obviously everyone's got high hopes for Ethan Walker and it looks like it's a great move for him to go up to Carlisle because obviously they're pushing for promotion and it'd be great to get him that experience as well because uh, Jack Armour's gone up there as well, hasn't he? After, obviously, he left the club last year and he seems to have done, doing well as well. So, obviously, he's got people up there that he already knows. So, it's good to see those sort of players getting out on loan. Is there any sort of chance for the likes of Jack Baxter or Adam O'Reilly to go out on loan or to, to potentially like the National League? Because... I don't believe that they have the same sort of transfer window policy just to get themselves some game time and potentially develop themselves as footballers over the next few months. They are only going to progress by playing football. We were disappointed we didn't get either of them out into the Football League this week. We tried. Um, I have talked to one club today who is interested in taking, well, both of those two players you mentioned. One, I don't think, will go. Um, uh, but it's our job to get them into adult football. Um we got them out last year, as you know, um, and we'll continue to do that. But they need to be playing adult football, not under-23 football. And our job and task is to get them into into clubs playing uh, at an adult level as soon as possible. In terms of this season, then, uh, what, what constitutes a successful end to the season for you? Like, How would you define that? Um, look, I, I think it's always very difficult when people try and say, you know, is 11th successful, is 7th successful, is whatever. Because um, actually it will be what it will be. Um, uh, the championship is very tough. Um, I don't think this year there are many weak teams. And in fact, some of the surprises has been the teams who have been down at the bottom. Um, you know, we're in a situation where um, certainly Nottingham Forest, who last year thought they were going to get in the playoffs and just missed out, have been down at the bottom for a lot of the season. Derby County have been down towards the bottom a lot of the season. So clubs that historically have been up there expecting promotion have been finding it tough this year. Um, I can't overestimate um, or overemphasise just what the implication has been of having no crowds. And I think it's made it a um, more even division and I think, therefore, success starts off with we've got to stay in the championship. Um, then we need to get as high up as possible. And I'd certainly hope that with the work we've done this January, we um, still have a chance of getting into the playoffs. We're six points off, I think. Um, but um, 
if you come out of a pandemic, if you come out of the period of being in the financial uncertainty surrounding everybody else, and you're in good financial state and secure in the championship to start with, I think that that's a huge sigh of relief. Thereafter, we want to get as high as possible. Yeah. In terms of the championship, we've sort of, well, more specifically you, Jim, you've highlighted, haven't you, in piece that you wrote for Lang's Live, just how much, not worse it's become, but it's almost become a more boring league this season. I think, was it across the season you worked out that on average there'd be 250 less goals or something, Jim? It's going to be the it's going to be the fewest goals in the Championship in its history in second-tier football. I think look, one of the reasons for that, in my view, is that when you have supporters in the stadium, um, they almost demand or drive clubs to um, uh, to attack or whatever. Uh, we've noticed a lot more clubs come to deep down, just stick 10 men behind the ball. Um, and they don't care because there's no supporters. We've been to clubs away from home that stuck 10 men behind the ball, where normally home supporters wouldn't put up with it. So I think there's been a sort of a different, whether fear factor is the right word, I don't know, or, but there has been a definite shift in tactics in teams since we got to a situation where there's no supporters. Um, now, how quickly that changes once you do get supporters, I don't know. But I'm not surprised in what you've said. Um, and certainly I've noticed we, we go into um, to teams and, you know, teams that historically have been very open, free-flowing football. And you get there and there's 10 men behind the ball. Yeah. Um, so I do think that the lack of um, support atmosphere. I also think there are certain players, you know, we, we talked about Ben Pearson a few minutes ago when we talked about him going off um, to Bournemouth. I think Ben Pearson thrives on crowds. I think he thrives on the heat of the battle, etc. I think that energy and the drive, walking out to an empty stadium and having no atmosphere, I think impacts some people's performance. Yeah, it's not the yeah. same, is it? Just on that, how did how did like it feel going to Luton when obviously they had a certain number of supporters in and how do you think that impacted the lads and, and the manager? Well, I don't know because we didn't perform that day, did we, in terms of this season? Do you think that was in, in terms of that? Do you think that was because maybe stage fright to an extent that there was fans there? or? Well, I don't know because not, let's not forget one of our best performances of the season, despite the fact we drew and I thought we deserved to win, was at Norwich. Uh, and Norwich had, I think, a thousand supporters there that day as a trial. Um, no, I don't think it's stage fright. It might be a slight reminder of what it's like with fans rather than no fans. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I think um, I say we'd played at Norwich with supporters and we were in a situation where we'd played very well at Luton the back end of, I think it was the first game back, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. June, um, but without it? supporters. Um, no, I just, I don't think you can put it down to that. But I do think you can genuinely put down to no supporters um, uh, some of that drive energy, the ability to close down, etc. Um, I think that has been impacted. Yeah. Do you, do you just have a message for, for the fans who are maybe perhaps unsure about the direction that the club is taking or maybe in two minds about whether or not to return to Deepdale when we're allowed or maybe just something in general, a message in general for the fans? Sure, look, I think um, the starting point is football clubs only exist for, for their supporters. And um, without supporters, as we're finding out now, the soul of the club is harder to keep together. 
So um, we're grateful for the fact that so many have been watching I follow. So many people have still been interacting with us by whether it be social media, emails, whatever it happens to be. And we are desperately keen to get them back. And all we will say is that we've spent a lot of time and energy making Deep Dale a safe place to come. Um, you know, I've been lucky that I've been to all our games. Um, we are tested twice a week at the training ground. Um, we've done very well in terms of restricting COVID outbreaks. So if and when fans are allowed back in whatever numbers, all I can tell them is they will be A, welcome, B, they will be safe. And we will do things as professionally as any football club in the country at whatever level. Um, and all I'd like to say is you'll be welcome back as soon as possible. But in the meantime, stick with us. Remember how important you are to us. And we do appreciate it. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. As I said at the start, thanks for your time as well. Really appreciate it. And hopefully it's to a good end to the season. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And thank you for your time. Cheers. No, thank thank you. you very much. Cheers, Peter. Thanks. Bye-bye.